Hello and welcome to the Armin Show podcast, episode number 359. We are always learning more science, people, creativity. Subscribe if you haven't. The show continues to grow. On this episode here, we have Steve Magnus, the author of this book, Do Hard Things, which spoke to me immediately when I saw it because I like this category of material. Steve, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for, so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Very glad to have you. Let me do a bit of a biography here. You are a world-renowned expert on health and human performance, co-author of Peak Performance, which is a best-selling book, The Passion Paradox. I like the alliteration in these book titles. It is memorable. It's a wonderful thing like Blackberry or Palm Pilot. The author of The Science of Running, and your work has appeared in Sports Illustrated, Wired, Outside, New York Magazine, and Forbes, and you're the co-founder of The Growth Equation, a wide variety of activities. Now... How would you describe yourself to a person who you just met as far as your day-to-day or week-to-week activity? Yeah, so what I would, that's a good question because I do a lot of things. So my description would be I'm someone who has created the space to like follow my interests. And right now my interest lies in human performance, which is how do we perform better at the tasks and our pursuits that we're pursuing? And that could be on the athletic field, that could be in the workplace, that could be as an entre- artist or entrepreneur. It's just, I think it's all performance. So I'm all about kind of like unraveling those things and then helping people, you know, do better. It makes me think of the personal development space, which was very. Well, it's still large, but I used to write articles back in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12 in that space. Did you participate at that time, writing articles or blogging, anything like that? Yeah, so I was a blogger to begin with, but honestly, my background was more in the athletic development space is where I came from. And is for a long time, I worked only with athletes and I worked with how to get them, you know, faster, stronger, all that good stuff. And, you know, made my way up to where I was coaching, you know, world-class or Olympic-level athletes. And then I kind of transitioned where I still do a bit of that, but I transitioned into a wider world of, okay, here's all these lessons and tactics and tools that I've seen work with athletes. Maybe this applies to everyone else, and maybe everyone else can, like, teach me something with athletics. So um, I kind of came about it, you know, maybe a different direction than uh, the traditional, like, personal development space back in the, the mid-2000s. Makes sense. That's cool. Yours is more the application end versus the – I did a lot of writing at that time, but it wasn't the application end as much. That's cool. Now, the first thing that comes to mind, are enough people doing hard things in society – is it a limitation to our society if we have not enough people doing hard things? And what are some hard things? Yeah, that's a good question, Armin. I think that, you know, what it is is that um, when we challenge ourselves, we put ourselves in a place of, like, uncertainty and feeling a little anxiety and not being sure, you know, which way this outcome or this thing is going to be go. And when we do that, that's also that's often the opportunity for growth. And if we always shy away from that difficult thing, then what we are ingraining is ingraining is this like avoidance mindset or the avoidance of doing difficult things. And I think in society, 
what's happened uh, to a degree is um, the hard things will always be there. Often they're kind of lumped onto us, but we're we're kind of shying away and not actively pursuing as much of the difficult things. And when we do that, we're essentially like manipulating our, our inner alarm system, meaning when we don't do anything difficult for a while, our brain and body adapts. It's almost like going out and if you uh, work out, like if you haven't worked out for months and months and months, you go out, you try and go for a run, you try and lift some weights, and like that alarm in your brain is just going off being like, stop, like what are you doing? This hurts a lot, right? And But if you've been consistently you know, working out over time, that that alarm gets quieter and quieter and maybe more to the place where it's realistic, where it's like, yes, this is difficult, but I can handle it. And I think the same thing applies to society as a whole is if we shy away and we seek comfort too much, then it's almost like we're detraining our brain where we're not used to doing the difficult thing. So I think it's it's important where we embrace challenges and discomfort. I like it quite a bit. I was actually reading some parts of your book at the gym while doing hard things. So that was a nice combination there. And maybe somebody else saw that and thought to themselves, I will do hard things as well. Now, what can we do to get our head in space where we are doing more of these difficult things for a person? Let's say a person is going through the day kind of like a baked croissant, really soft and not taking risks or pushing hard. And this is happening day after day after day. What are a couple of things that person can do to get out of that rut per se, so that they can take on a challenge in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the things that we often do is we think when we think doing hard things, we think like, oh, that means I've just got to do like the most difficult challenge that we have. And that that I think is often a mistake because like what happens if, you know, one day I say, Armin, like you need to do something difficult. And the next day you're like, okay, I'm going to run a marathon. Well, you're going to probably fail, you know, and it's, it's gonna, it's gonna set you back where you're just like, oh, what's the point? Like, I can't do this difficult challenge. But if I said, you know what, Armin, again, I don't know what your fitness is, but I said, instead of running a marathon, like I want you to go run a 5k or a mile or whatever is appropriate. You'd probably say, okay, this is challenging. It's difficult but I can handle it, right? And, and, and that's, that's often the key mistake we often make where it's like with those difficult things is it's not like, hey, we want to conquer Mount Everest. It's choose the things in your life that, that anytime you feel that anxiety or like, oh, I really don't want to do that, re, like, reframe it and think like, okay, this is an opportunity, I should do this. And sometimes it's the simplest things. It's, you know, taking that meeting. It's speaking to your boss. It's like getting up and standing up in front of you know, your colleagues and giving us a presentation or, or voicing your opinion. Like those moments where we feel like we need to shy away, but instead we can, you know, actively embrace it. And what happens is <coughs> over time, you're building that mental muscle. So if you do a lot of small, difficult things, it gives you the capacity whenever it's time to do that big, you know, audacious challenge where you have the resources to to take it on. 
is it fair to say in the book you had mentioned that a lack of confidence to do things constricts your response is it fair to say that a heft of confidence you can not only respond well and make something occur but it's almost like you're opening a new avenue and from that you can open a new avenue just because you started going in the direction of uh, reaching for something like believe in yourself but you're able to open like a new field that wasn't there previously to your mind. Yeah, exactly. I think you're spot on there, and I'm glad you brought that up because um, the way it works is, you know, it's almost like it opens up what I call or psychology calls like your your action possibilities, meaning when you're low in confidence, what happens is you tend to only see like right in front of you. And it's the same when we feel very stressed, right? You have that tunnel vision, right? And you can't see anything else. So it feels horrible because you're like, all I can see is the path in front of me. Like, how am I going to get out of this? And you can't see maybe in your periphery. It's like, oh, there's an easy solution over here. Or, oh, if I go this this path over here, I'm going to be okay. So confidence allows us to kind of see the bigger picture, and see that there might be more opportunities for growth or opportunities to, you know, navigate this thing that looks uh, looks like it's impossible in the moment. It's a cool concept. Action possibility. I like that. It's like your option, your optionality. It, 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 exactly. It, it's it really is, and it's like there's some fascinating science and psychology behind it that actually shows that. <laughs> your brain will like activate different areas when it has more action possibilities. Right. So the the example, you know, maybe this doesn't work entirely, but like if I'm, I'm sitting in a chair right now, well, my action possibility for most of us is to like sit in the chair. So that lights up a lot in the brain. Like that's the only one, but the reality is I could also stand on the chair. I could pick up the chair. I could toss the chair across the room. Right. But I'm not going to do any of those because they're they're not like functional. But in the same way, like you're you have these different actions, but you often constrict on the on only one. But if someone comes in the room, maybe I want that action possibility to throw the chair. I don't know. So the confidence is often the thing that allows us to kind of like gain perspective and see that, yeah, this might be the primary path, but every once in a while we might want to go in this other direction uh, with this other action possibility. It's an interesting feature that sometimes you can be doing something for a minute, 10 minutes, an hour, such, and then the minute there's somebody else that shows up or some experience happens, something you weren't thinking about for the last four hours. Now you're like, oh, that thing, oh, that corner, I could move that there. I could go this way. I could take this different turn on the road. But none of that would have occurred until that person showed up and had a certain energy. And like, oh, oh, okay, I should do this. It's like they kick-started you. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because, again, there's some interesting psychology behind this. And um, in, in uh, ecological psychology, they call it the environment invites action. And that environment can be another person, right? Where it's almost like it kickstarts your brain and it says, oh, here's some more possibilities. Or, oh, I could see this um, in, in, in a different way. <laughs> and often what happens is we don't open ourselves up to that environment. And maybe the example that, that might help the listeners understand this is um, every once in a while, you'll hear of these situations where – 
or maybe you've had it occur in the car. You turn on your GPS for navigation and you just follow the GPS wherever it goes, right? You stop thinking and you're just like, GPS is telling me turn left, I'm going to turn left. And every once in a while it takes you the wrong path. And it's almost like you need the environment to like knock you out and dislodge you to be like, hey, wait a minute, this isn't the way I need to go. This is wrong. Well, life is often the, in a similar way where we kind of get constricted and almost like we're autopilot following that GPS. Well, we can have other things like people who provide that perspective that can knock us out of that kind of uh, status quo. And I think that that applies when we're looking at doing hard or difficult things or developing toughness is often other people can provide that perspective to allow us to take on challenges and then also give us the security so that we can take on that challenge. Should we be waiting most for certain people or happenings to show up? Should we be waiting for our, uh, certain times of the day where our energy is up or somehow where we got momentum built? What are some of, what, what, what might be the largest trigger or force to us going and doing something we couldn't do for four days. Yeah. So I think it's important is to use your environment with you, which is like when you're taking on a difficult challenge, like don't do it when you're fatigued and tired and didn't get a lot of sleep beforehand, because like when we're fatigued and tired and exhausted, we default towards the easy decision. There's all sorts of research that shows this. Like after a very long day, we're more likely to choose you know, the candy in the cabinet instead of the vegetables that like are, you know, in the fridge or what have you. So what we want to do is set ourselves up for success, which often is how do we prime ourselves so that we're in the best position to, um, you know, uh, perform up to our, our capabilities. And often that is, you know, it depends on the person and you have to know how you work best. But for example, I'll give you an example. When I'm writing, writing is, even though I'm an author, it's still a very difficult task. As you, you know you know yourself, Armin, it's like tough to, to sit down and do a lot of work. If I, if I waited until you know, I got everything else done in, in my workday, I probably wouldn't be able to be very productive. So on like this deep, focused intellectual work, I need to do it early in the day when like my brain is fresh and all that good stuff. So that's when I plan it. You know, I, during my more fatigued or tired things, I might plan more of the mindless things like, you know, replying to emails or what have, whatever have you, where I'm just trying to get through it and I don't have to think too much. It's just like, get that task done. So hundred percent when you're looking at tackling difficult things or ideas, it's like, set yourself up for success in the same way that an athlete does when they're, they have a big game. Like they, they know the big game is coming. So they set themselves up for the routine, for their sleep, all of that things. So they're going to be at their optimum so that they can perform when it's time or when it counts. I like this reminder here. It's a very important one, putting the bulk of your great ability, your stronger, decision-making your day's strength toward the thing you're trying to work on or build or that matters because if you leave it after mundane tasks 
then you used some of your golden energy on mundane tasks, and now you have less energy for what matters, which is very frustrating, and then the next day, and now you're off on the cycle. It, exactly, 100%. It's like, it, you, it, it, it's almost like you build momentum on things. So, like, set yourself up for that success, and, and, and far too often what we do is we don't have clarity and purpose around things. So often what happens is we sit down and we just tackle what's right in front of us or the easiest thing so that by the time we get to the difficult thing, we're already exhausted and it's not going to help. Highly valuable there. This one YouTuber, I remember he, he, after, let's say, two, three years of making videos, he decided to just right after he woke up, start working on his videos because he realized I have my most energy right then. I'll put aside eating, anything else, just work on my videos for two hours and then go through the day because my focus was on the thing that matters to me the most. And then the rest I'll just handle as it comes comes by. Yeah. Focus path. Now, one thing that comes to mind is a lot of your material is related to the athletic field. Why the athletic field versus, I guess, I don't know, other fields like food or finances or whatever other fields there might be. Yeah. What about it? Spoke yeah, I, I think a lot of that, and that's a good pickup, is that um, there's something about the athletic field where there is an outcome. We can see progress, and it kind of cuts to the core of you either succeed or you don't. You either run faster or you don't. You either win the game or you don't. And that makes things a little bit more clear cut than in more nebulous fields, maybe like business, where, you know, you can succeed despite or in spite of what you're doing or, or whatever have you. So I just like that kind of finality behind it um, that provides some clear answers. And I think the other part is there's also a lot of passion in athletics. So that's it's a lot of how do we figure this out? which creates innovation uh, where people, you know, are always kind of pushing boundaries to see what can work better and, uh, you know, how do we perform better um, instead of maybe sometimes getting stuck in, uh, in the old ways. You can feel what's going on. You can see it. Okay, this result, that right there. There's energy. Oh, we can do this. We got this, guys. Okay, let's make a move. Okay, let's try this. Whereas in some fields, it's more like, you know, we'll wait until quarter two to see some of the returns. It's just not, it's like over there. It, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, it, you know, there's in, in some business, like you have to wait till the end of the quarter. So there's a lot of things that could go into, well, what, what made this quarter successful or not? Because there's a lot of variables and like a time delay there. In athletics, it's like you see the, you see, you approach the performance you do the performance, you see the result of the performance. So we can tie kind of our actions to what actually occurs um, a lot easier and quicker. Now, this is just the unrelated but fitness related question out of nowhere. If someone started today from their general average level of fitness, how long would it take, let's say in years, I guess, to get to their great like uh, near their wonderful top level of fitness for that person? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. It's a little tough to answer, and I think it depends on your age and your ex and where you're starting from. But 
the good news is that the the research and the experience shows us that people can continue progressing and developing for a long time. Um, so generally what happens is you'll have a very quick response when you start something. So over the first months and year, like you're going to respond to a lot of things and get better very quickly. And then over time that those improvements are harder and harder to get. And there's a bigger and bigger gap between when you get them, but you still are able to progress. And I think that, you know, instead of saying, oh, it's going to take me a year or five years or six years or 10 years to make it to my top, I think I, I like to look at it as I'm going on this exploratory journey and I don't know, you know, when it's it, when I'm going to reach my peak. But I know if I keep working that I'm going to figure this out and find this out. And if it happens in five years, great. If it happens in 10 years, great. But it's like fall in love with that process of seeing how good you can get in your athletic pursuits. This is actually very informative there. And also reminded me of something from the book. Can you speak on the value of going in a direction and how toughness connects with not knowing the end results or the timetable for it versus having like a, you know, 30 minute project and knowing all the details. Of yeah. It. How is toughness connected with the uncertainty? It, exactly. That, that plays a big role because what, what we like is, um, we're, our brain loves control and predictions. So we like to know that, Hey, if I'm got, I've got a project that's going to last an hour then it's almost like our brain realizes, okay, I've got an hour. I can divvy up how much energy we expend on this project. If you sit back down and you say, okay, I'm going to work on something for you know, a long time, and I don't know when the finish is, what happens is your brain is then uncertain. It doesn't know, well, do I devote like 100% attention and focus and energy to this thing you know, for the next hour? And maybe it lasts 12 hours and then I'm going to be tired, fatigued and like can't pay attention because I've got this fatigue build up or not. So a lot of toughness is getting used to and sitting with that uncertainty instead of fighting it. Because a lot of situations where we need to be tough are situations that are uncertain, where we don't know the end result or we don't know how long this is going to take or what's going to happen. And the more we stress and worry about it, the more that, you know, the the worse we're going to perform. So a lot of it is how do you get comfortable with the uncomfortable? That worry item, I've made a acronym for it before. When you're worrying for something way before it's happening, you're paying the anticipatory pain tax. It's like a little tax you're paying for nothing. And then, like you mentioned in the book, I like it. I never thought about the after effects with some people later on are looking back, like, oh, what went wrong? Or, what, you know, there's three times, you know, beforehand, after. That's a triple payment right there. And it should have only been one. And maybe at that, you could have managed the one during the time. So it's like paying an extra. Yeah, I love that anticipatory tax because, like, it's the same idea as that, you know, a lot of us, um, it, we're not just responding to the stress of the, the, the stressful event. We're 
spending hours or days worrying about it, like on the front end. And then as you, you showed or talked about in the book, I outline how afterwards what happens is we often spend hours or days lingering there. Like we think about what went wrong or what we did, or like we're ruminating on that. And what that shows is we get this triple dose of stress and it's not necessarily the stress of the event itself. It's the before and after that often sets us back. So the best thing that we can often do is figure out, you know, um, how do we appropriately set ourselves up? And then after the stressful thing is how do we turn it off and shut things down so that we can get back to normal and not like linger in that stress state? I want to sit there. That's not an island we want to visit regularly for no reason. Exactly. One of the items that I thought of, because I've always identified with being somewhat fearless and bold compared to the average person, what are some features of a person's uh, brain that were mentioned here, like the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and their connection? How does that connect with why one person might... Uh, reach for more difficult things or be able to handle them more smoothly and another person might have to pay this tax more often unnecessarily. Yeah, exactly. So there's some um, fascinating research uh, that I, and I'll, I'll keep it simple, but essentially it's, it's almost like your executive function or prefrontal cortex battling with your kind of emotional controller or amygdala. <laughs> and what we know is that the pre they 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 work in conjunction with each other so like the more stress that comes on the more that amygdala goes up and the less the prefrontal cortex or executive function can quiet down that stressful event so it's almost like your cognitive rational brain kind of goes offline and we've all experienced this you know in different situations where we almost like lose our our cool one of the, the places you actually see this is, A, with, with kids who often don't have a, a strong prefrontal cortex or executive function yet, where they just like default to throwing a tantrum. And they often don't know why, right? It just goes crazy. And then in adults, you see the same thing sometimes when, you know, you're, you're maybe arguing with a spouse or a significant other and for a moment, you kind of lose perspective and you lose your mind a little bit and you're arguing with this person that like you love and want to treat nicely and all this stuff. Well, part of it is like your prefrontal cortex went offline and your amygdala is like, you know, taken over and you're in that kind of fight or flight mode. So <laughs> a lot of being tough is how do I, um, how do I keep my prefrontal cortex online and teach it kind of to respond instead of react. I like to mention that example and maybe think of times, which is rare for me, but occasionally where I can see the conversation is going in the direction of that. So that's a good way to think, but I'll think about that the next time that happens. That's a good one. Very applicable. And I think that others can think of those times when they're having a conversation too. And it's, it went from being enjoyable and fun to kind of out of your hands and uncomfortable. And you almost want to get away at that point. Huh. That's a good one. Informative. Now, one thing that was just coming to mind is in the category of doing hard things, is there one or two people that come to mind? There may be many, but as 
examples of an individual that regularly does hard things or challenges themselves, and they've done this for years in some way that you have looked at? Yeah, so I'm going to go way back, and I'm going to give you a historical example that I think is really relevant. We want historical examples. <laughs> um, so this one is... Uh, you know, one of my favorite to research was uh, actually Abraham Lincoln, you know, the, the, the president of the US, U.S. during the Civil War. And it was fascinating because Lincoln almost had this like he had a very tough life and he suffered from what we now know is depression and all these things. But he was also able to navigate the country through its most difficult moment, probably in its history. Right. It's like, how do you na navigate a split in, in, in the United States? Well, he was able to do it. And the fascinating thing is he was very clear and almost some called him like pessimistic, but like clear and deeply rational in the in the here and now. So if you look at, you know, his correspondence with his generals and all that while they're going through this, he is like you know, focused on and worrying about like each individual battle and how can we figure this out and blah, blah, blah. But then over the long haul, he has this like profound optimism and hope. You know, he's giving speeches and writing correspondence that we will win this thing and like we are going to be a more perfect union and we will like rid society of this ill of slavery so he balances out this like in the moment like i'm going to be a realist with this hope and optimism for the future that i think really gets at this like how do we do difficult things it's almost kind of like that is like we almost have to be real in on this like yes we're going to have to challenge ourselves yes this is going to be very difficult but then hold out that like hope and optimism for the future of this is going to pay off this is worth it this is going to like fundamentally change us or society or whatever have you for the future. A nice feature that it makes me think of that if you are able to do the difficult things in your daily existence and push hard enough there, then to the general public or outward, you're able to bring a nice, smooth, warm presentation of the, the way things are going in that direction versus if you are not touching the difficult things in your own life, then you're probably going to hand out some uh, rougher communications to the public that isn't really for them. It was actually because you weren't doing the toughness on your own end. You're like throwing it up to them for no reason. It, exactly. We want to we want to do it on our own. It's like our inner our inner world. By the way, that's a topic of importance here. The average person, I think, cannot be alone for 14 seconds until something like after something um for that individual how can they get that 14 seconds up to five minutes which sounds short but i think it would be a challenge for i could find a lot of people if i went out in public that couldn't do that for five minutes yeah how could they up that 14 seconds today yeah no i it's interesting i think it's really hard nowadays too as well with uh cell phones and all that good stuff is like like our our mind our inner world doesn't like to sit sit there in silence or sit there and be alone in our thoughts. And actually there was a fascinating study that took a bunch of people, stuck them in the room and said, Hey, essentially sit here. We'll come back to you. And the only thing they had was a button, but if they push that button, it shocks them <laughs> like a painful electric shock. 
And something like it was close to 70% of men push that button instead of sitting alone with their thoughts. So how do we develop that? Well, it sounds simple, but it's really difficult. Is we have to have moments in our day where we are mindful and aware and like sitting with our inner thoughts. And that could be a mindfulness practice. That could be something like doing the dishes and focusing only on the task at hand and not having music or a podcast or getting distracted over here. It's like looking for those small moments where I, sh I can say, okay, I'm going to be alone with my thoughts and be okay with it and not pull out my cell phone or not like go turn on the TV or not like look for the distracting thing. And if we can do that in small moments over time, that enhances our capacity over the long haul. One pair of people this takes me to in my thoughts is uh, I once talked with Scott Young. Do you know of Scott yep. Young, author of Ultra Learning? And his colleague friend, uh, Cal Newport, and deep work and focusing on something for hours at a time. Is it fair to say that I've always had this thought that if you do, let's say, an inner moment with yourself for 10 minutes or focused work for two hours, it is way more memorable five months later than almost anything else you could have done that day. There's something about like that five minute block. You'll still remember that five minute block month later versus all the other five minute blocks of distraction have no memorable Exactly. And I think that's, it's almost like it, it, when we do that deep work, it feels like we're in the zone and it like, it, it ingrains that almost memory in our capacity where it feels good. That's where we cry. We crave like moments like that, even though they're difficult to, to get to and often difficult during them. So I think you're spot on to me. It's uh, how do you find those spaces and moments? I think it was the philosopher and mythologist Joseph Campbell who said like during those moments that make us feel alive. And that is often where we feel alive is when we're doing something and have that deep focus that challenges us. That is, you know, something in our interest. And if we can do that more often, we're going to feel alive more often and we're going to remember and harness that energy. How early in your existence did you start putting together the pieces or what I would call the combination of like researching, writing, reading, talking to figure out things? Was it from early on? Was it more recent? When did that path start for you? How would you describe yeah, it? Yeah, so I would say um, I've always kind of been a curious person, but it, it I was not... Uh, big into academics or anything like that uh, in high school or even in college. It wasn't really until, you know, probably midway through college where this stuff started sparking my interest. And I and I got interested in, OK, and that curiosity kind of explored. So to me, I would say I was a late bloomer on this because often people will say like, oh, I've always been interested in stuff and like exploring ideas and all that good stuff. And my message to people is like, don't freak out if you're not like this person in high school who loves doing all that stuff. Like it, everybody will get there at some point. You just have to keep exposing yourself to different interests, new ideas. And if you do that over the long haul, you'll be okay. That's a good message. That reminded me of one rapper. They asked him, Hey, your album, you came out at, I don't know, age 27. Uh, how do you feel about that? Is this, 
beyond when it should have been like timing wise he was like it's the perfect time <laughs> when it came out it's the perfect time whenever it occurs the, it's the perfect time i love it some things in my existence you know there are certain times and could be later than the average earlier than the average but there's the average and then there's our actual existence it has nothing to do with it there's no connection whatsoever is it worthwhile for a person who does difficult things to surround themselves with other people who reach for them does it make a difference does it like piggyback off of people or uh is that not a big deal so it is so what what the research clearly shows is that our emotions are contagious and the our actions are as well so uh there was a fascinating study that showed that looked at i think it was in the u.s air force cadets that found that if the like least fit person in the squadron the group was working really hard then everybody else would work really hard and improve as well so to me that sends a signal of you know, surround yourself with people who are reflecting your values and are doing like taking on difficult challenges, because that will make it where you're more likely to, you know, fall in line and copy and mimic and all that good stuff as well. I've had a few times when I spoke with uh, two authors of a book or two people working on, uh, they're like part of a fishing channel. They're brothers, they're my friends, and they have a fishing channel. And there's something to the teamwork of it and kind of you remember those individuals as a team in a way and your writing has teamed up with brad stolberg a few times in that capacity is there some things that could not have occurred if you didn't team up in that way yeah definitely i think we both bring different perspectives to things we're complementary and i think brad challenges me um to think about things in a different light. As I said, my background is more athletics. His background was more in, in healthcare and in different fields like that. So it allows us allows me to broaden my perspective. And it also is, you know, Brad's someone who's gonna push and challenge me and, you know, always try and do greater and more difficult things. So I think again, surround yourself with people who reflect the values that you have and are, are gonna, you know, push and promote you into being the best version of yourself. On the category of books, are there any books that have inspired you in the direction you're currently in or that are like a book you look to every month or go back to? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm, I'm a pretty avid reader. So I have a lot of books that you know, I go to for inspiration. Uh, I love, um, I love David Epstein's, uh, both of his books, range and the sports gene. I am a big fan of Robert Sapolsky, uh, his, his latest one behave. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's, there's, you know, I love some of, you know, like Marcus Aurelius's meditations on stoic philosophy. So, you know, I, there, and then Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is another, you know, one that I probably read once a year. And I think, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in, in reading wide and far and exposing yourself to different ideas. Mm -hmm. This one's an uh, interesting angle here. If someone is completely out of fitness, would they, would it be important for them to become fit before even thinking about taking on hefty challenges in their life or should it be a merged process? 
let's say someone is just way out of fitness, would it be like, okay, forget everything else, focus on this, and then two or three years from now, get to uh, this goal or this challenge? Or is merging worthwhile? Is there yeah, yeah, I think it depends on the indiv- individual. And I would say, you know, whatever gives you and allows you to experience joy and the pursuit and keeps you motivated to do so is the path that you should take. And often that path is like, you know, one of the basics of motivation is making progress. So are you making progress? Um, can you set yourself up and give you goals that can make small bouts of progress? And if you can do that, then you're going to be in a good spot. So to me, again, it's, you know, depends on the individual, but like, how do you keep, you know, yourself motivated in that pursuit? And that's the path you should take. Going towards the category of what's fun, keeping the fun there. That's just true. I like when I do things that are fun, it makes sense. And then no time was ever wasted when you did something that was enjoyable. Exactly. If you had a megaphone to all the people on the planet, what is, a message you would want them to take away from do hard things. <laughs> um, let's say embrace discomfort, like go towards it and like sit with it. Well, let's say embrace discomfort, go towards it and sit with it. I think if you did, did those things, you'd be in a good spot. That's cool. I have to add in this links with a lyric from Jay-Z where he says, don't run from the pain, go towards yep, it. Exactly. I always like that little quote. Just go towards that end. That is wonderful. Steve, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode of the show, sharing a bit from this fine book in the category that I'm quite interested in and will be probably for decades because difficulty and challenge always feels like home. And I know for others going towards that connects with their human instinct. It's great to have had you on this one. Well, thanks so much, Armin. Really appreciate it. Wonderful speaking with you. And we are out.